Thank you for this evening. We thank you for the chance to gather together and just to fellowship and to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at you, this section in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Joshua chapter 12. We've just finished the, northern, the story of the northern campaign. Before that, it was the southern campaign as, they t- as they're taking the promised land. We've got your new maps there to show the time. What, what it looked like before the conquest and what it looked like after the uh, conquest. So verse 1 of chapter 12. Now these are the kings of the land where the children of Israel smote and possessed their land on the other side of Jordan toward the rising of the sun from the river Anon unto the Mount Hermon and all the plain on the east. Sion, king of the Amorites who dwelt in Heshbon and ruled from Aroer, which is upon the bank of the river Arnon and from the middle of the river and the half of Gilead even to the river of Jabbok, which is on the border of the children of Ammon, and from the plain to the sea of Shinaroth on the east and unto the sea of the plain, even the salt sea on the east, the way to beth Jesimoth, and, and from the south under Ashdoth-Pisgah and the, and the coast of the Og, king of Bashan, which was the remnant of the giants that dwelt in Ashtoroth and at Edrei, and reigned from Mount Hermon and in Shalgah and in Bashan unto the border of the Geshurites and, and all and the Machacharites and the half of Gilead, the border of Zion, king of Heshbon, Them did Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel smite. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it for a possession unto the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. All right, so let's look at this first little section and and see what we're we're talking about here and try try to get a picture of this. And basically, Og and Bashan are kings on the east side of the River Jordan, and this is the land that's given to the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan. If you look at the original map, that's basically the Amorites mm-hmm. uh, that have been taken out and the, the Moabites on the, on, the, on the lower side. And these are the two kings that they, they beat and basically they went to war with them because they just said, no, you can't go through our land and, and God said, okay, and they, and they mobilized to go to war with Israel. And if all they, if they had, they'd still be in existence, probably if they'd have just let people, let the children of Israel walk through and pay for their water and, and food that they, like they said they would. But God moved them to make an attack. And so we look at this, and we're not going to read all of this, but basically the Ammonites were from Heshbon, and the rivers that they name are the Arnon, and up to Jabesh. Jabok River, which is right there in the center of your center of your map, uh, right by the Dead Sea, halfway up the Jordan River, and then the other one was from the Jabok on up to the Sea of Galilee, and that's pretty much what they took over on the east side of the Jordan, where two and a half tribes were going to be able to stay. And remember, Moses said, "You can have this land, but all your men of war have to go into battle." With, the, with your brethren into the promised land. And when they've got their inheritance, then, you can, then your men can go back to their land. So we're, we're seeing this long list of kings that 
that are listed. And one of the things about this, we go, well, why did God put this list of people in here? Mostly is, number one, this is a history book. Uh, Joshua is a book of history, and it's showing this is what God did. And these are the kings that were there at the time. It also goes in to be able to prove that it is an accurate history, because as we discover the archaeology of that world, we find these kings, <laughs> this list of kings there. And just kind of proves that it was written when it was written and that the battles and everything happened the way God said they did. And so it gives us this long list, and it kind of makes it boring for us as we read it, but, it, but at the same time, for people who understand this area and those kings, it would make a lot of sense. Uh, for us as Americans, it would be like saying, and these were the battles of the Civil War, and list the major battles of the Civil War and who their generals were and all of that. And we go, okay, yeah, I've heard of these people. I've heard of those places. The only problem for us is we read it 2,000, well, almost 3,000 years later with no, con no knowledge of their geography. It's like, okay, big deal. <laughs> God, why'd you put all of this in here? Uh, but for them, all of this kind of makes more sense. They, they know these places. They know what's being talked about. And it does give us a historical marker. And it's kind of kind of fun to track these things down, go to the old maps and say, OK, here's where they were, and this is what they're talking about. And you can find everything right on the old maps. All right, so we see, see this history being unfolded and that God gave the land to two and a half tribes. And then we go into verse 7, and we're going to have more fun reading names. <laughs> And these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel smote on this side of the Jordan on the west from Baal God in the valley of Lebanon even in, un, unto the Mount Halak that goes up into Syria which Joshua gave unto the tribes of Israel for a possession according to their divisions in the mountains and in the valleys and in the plains and in the springs and in the wilderness and in the south country of the Hit. Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Pezites and the Hittites and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho won the king of Ai, which was beside Bethel, won the king of Jerusalem, won the king of Hebron, won the king of Jamuth, won the king of Lachish, won the king of Eglon, won the king of Gezer, Gezer won the king of Deber, won the king of Gider, won the king of Homath, won the king of Ered, Erad, one the king of Lipna, one the king of Abdullam, one the king of Mechedah, one the king of Bethel, one the king of Tapua, one the king of Hefer, one the king of Aphek, one the king of Lasharon, one the king of Madan, one the king of Hazrael, one the king of Shimron Miran, one the king of Echshaf, one the king of Ta'ach, one the king of Megiddo, one the king of Gadesh, one the king of Jachneram of Carmel, one the king of Dor of, in the coast of Dor, one the king of the nations of Gilgal, one the king of Tizra, and one all of these kings, 31 kings. <laughs> you didn't have to count them, it was counted for you. We've been covering these, basically these kings, for the last three or four weeks because these are the battles both of the southern conquest and in the northern conquest. And from everything we've been able to read, these two conquests happened fairly quickly. 
Because we've got to remember, we're going to find out that Joshua dies at 110 years old. He spent, they spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering around, which puts him at about 70 years old. And during that period of time, he was not exactly young when he was, because he was the general of the army for the entire 40 years. So he figured he probably started out at about t between 20 and 30. And if we say 30, he was 60 when they entered the promised land. He spends 50 years. If he was 30, it was 40 years. So he was not a very young man when he led the people into Israel. And he's the general of the people, and then he becomes the full-fledged leader of the people. And it says that they conquered 31 different kings and cities during these conquests of the south and the north. And these names, some of these names should be familiar because we've just read a bunch of them, especially the leaders. And here we read a long list of all the kings of all the little, big and little places. And if you think about what, what we've talked about, if you look at the second map that shows after the, after the conquest, he's conquered quite a bit of territory. He never took the Philistines, and the Philistines are going to be a problem all the way through David's time. And even Solomon's time, the Philistines are going to be a, a nuisance. They didn't get rid of Bashan and Hittites in the, in the north. And the Edomites and the Moabites, they were told to leave alone because they were brethren, because those are the children of, of Lot and the insensual relationship with his daughters that created those people. And so we see how all around them are going to be people that are going to cause trouble for them all along. Now we look at this and we go, so why this long list of people, places, and kings, and all of that? And basically it's to prove the history that it's a historical book and it's accurate. And this is because we're, we're looking at a book that's a, a history book, basically. Joshua came in, this is what he did. And there's not, it's kind of hard to teach as a spiritual lesson because there's not a whole lot there, especially in this chapter, there's not a lot in there that spiritualize. You know, they went in, they killed a bunch of kings and took land. <laughs> what does that mean for us spiritually? It means that we're to go in and take, take, our, you know, take land spiritually and battle there, but we're not going to go too far into that, <laughs> into that realm. Basically, we've covered chapter 12, mostly because there's just not a lot there. It's just a straightforward, it's a history. All these kings were killed. Many of them, as we covered in the past, were, were conquered because they fled the battle scenes uh, and they conquered them and they executed them. We saw a lot of them being executed. This is a list of all the kings, both in the southern and northern campaigns. Yeah, these are just two different sets. And if you went back and actually mapped it against the last three chapters, you go, okay, this one was mentioned in this campaign, this one was mentioned in this campaign, this one was mentioned in this campaign, and you can map out which campaign they were part of. But this is 31 kings in however many, much time it took to conquer them. And Joshua's next task is going to be to divide the land between everybody. It passed out, shows you what, what the land is going to look like as it's divided and the boundaries that they're given for it. And we're, for the next three, two or three chapters, we have the land being divided. These are the, tribes. These are the different tribes that are going to be given various portions of that land in the, in the capital letters semi-bold. That'll give you an idea as we try to map out the boundaries that they're going to be talking about. Chapter 13. 
Now Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, You are old and stricken in years, like he didn't know. <laughs> and there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. This is the land that remains, all the borders of the Philistines, and the Geshuri, and from Sihor, which is before Egypt, even to the borders of Ekron, northward, which is counted to the Canaanites, five lords of the Philistines, the Gazarites, the Asterites, the Eskelonites, and the Gittites, and the Ekronites, and the Avites. And from the south, all the land of the Canaanites and the and Me'erah, which is beside the Sidereans, and the Aphek, and the borders of the Amorites, and the land of the Gibeonites, and, the, and all Lebanon, toward the rising of the sun from Baal Gad under Mount Hermon unto the entering of Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from the Lebanon unto the Misephomim, and all the Sidonites, them will I drive out from before the children of Israel, only divide you the, it by lot unto, the, unto Israelites for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance unto the nine tribes and the half tribes of Manasseh, and whom the Reubenites and the Gadites have received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan and eastward, even as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. And we're going to stop there for a moment. <laughs> So here we see that Joshua is getting older. He's getting really close to, his, to the end of his days at 110 years old. And just as when you remember when we studied the book of Deuteronomy, we said that Deuteronomy, even though it took us over a year to go through, was Moses speaking to the people in less than a week, re-giving them the whole law. From this point on, we have Joshua finishing up what God's telling him to do. He's going to divide the land. He's going to give his farewell speech to, to the people, and he's going to die. So this whole section here that we're on basically is year 108, 109, 110. He, you know, he's, he's up there in age, and it's this rest of the book, half the book, is just basically a fair, you know, tying up the loose ends and, and saying goodbye to the people. And so this is where we're at. And he says, Joshua was old and well stricken in, in years. And he says, and God says, you know, you, you're, you've gotten pretty old. There's a lot of land still left. So if you look at the map that we had that showed the land they conquered, down here where the Philistines are and that whole area by the, by the Mediterranean, God says, you're supposed to conquer that. Okay? You go back to the north where Sidon is, that land of the Hittites and the Bashan, all that's supposed to be divided out. And he's going to say, give it, give it, give it people, give it out into, uh, by lot, and give it to tribes, and they have to conquer their land still. But God said up in the northern portion, he was going to drive the people out. And that's what he said in here. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to get rid of them because you guys, are, you're, you're done fighting. You're, you're done with the battles, Joshua, and I, I, will, I will give the rest of the land to the people, basically, is what he's saying. So that, help, that should help you as... You know, he gives all these different places and markers, but basically, if you look at that map, the south southwest needs to be conquered, and the far north needs to be conquered, because God says all this land is yours. Every everywhere that Abraham's foot tread was going to belong to the children of Israel. So we're going to see Israel grow in the next. We're going to see them grow. Mostly, they, they will grow under David and Solomon's reign. During David's and Solomon's time, they're going to hold 
for the one and only time until Jesus returns, all the land that they're supposed to own. Oh, definitely. If you know, by the end, day, end days now, it's going to shrink during the tribulation period. But when Jesus comes and rules, they're going to get all the land. Of course, they're going to rule the entire world from Jerusalem. Well, of course, they didn't. They're going to try to destroy Israel. They're not. They're not looking for it to grow. But God says that they will, so they will. And the, when they were first created, they had a very small piece of land. They got attacked. They 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 expanded. And they haven't let go of the land since, basically since they expanded. And if they get attacked again, God will win and they'll expand further. So I don't think there's going to be another big six-day war until Jesus returns and he'll say, okay, now all the land is yours. And God promises it, it's going to happen. And it may happen during the Millennial Kingdom, but it's going to happen. Revelation, uh, this, this one, the promise of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant said that all everywhere that your foot touches is yours. And again, the only time that it's been Israel's in existence was under David and Solomon. And Solomon reigned from Euphrates all the way down to the Mediterranean, all the way down to Egypt and good portion of what's now called Saudi Arabia. So they, at one point in time, they had their kingdom that covered that whole area. So I even though he, he conquered that, basically, right? But conquered is not the same as being given that land. God gave it to him, or they conquered it, however you want to look at it. Uh, just because you take it by war, does that mean it wasn't given to you? Eventually, we'll go back to those boundaries as a minimum. And it will be seen during the Millennial Kingdom when we come back with Christ. Christ will rule over the entire land of Israel, which will be its full boundaries, but he'll also rule the entire world from Jerusalem during the Millennial Kingdom. Their people won't be around probably because they'll have been the ones that battle when Jesus wipes out the opposing army with the word. Yeah. Remember that during the Millennial at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom, at the end of the Tribulation period, when Jesus comes back with us, he speaks a word and the entire army that's against him dies. All right, and, the, and that's a way to do a war. And we're told in Revelation that the blood from that battle will flow to the horses' uh, bridles. That's a lot of blood, a lot of people dead quickly. And so this is, that's what's going to happen. There won't be a whole lot of enemy to even oppose him because most of them are going to be dead. And if they took the mark of the beast, they're sent into... Hades to, to await the final white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. So there really won't be any opposition to him from the side that has, that has made plans to agree with the Antichrist until Satan is released at the end of the thousand years and draws another army to fight against God somehow. So kind of hard to believe that people will side with, God, with, the, with Satan after a thousand years of a perfect reign of Christ but yet, because he's ruling with an iron rod and making them be obedient, there's going to be a lot of people that say, we're tired of being obedient. We just want to do what we want to do. And they will make an army to fight against God. And Satan will have another group of people that he's misled. And, uh, but here we see he's, him talking about this. He says, the land that you haven't received is the Philistines. And he names the big cities and these cities as we study Joshua, uh, Judges, and First and Second Samuel were ones that are really very familiar. Asherod, Ascalon, uh, Gezer, Ekron, those are the 
four major cities of Philistia. In the book of Judges, when they lose the Ark of the Covenant, and the some wonderful stories when they lose the Ark of the Covenant, they put it in the they put the Ark of the Covenant in the the temple of uh, Dagon. And they wake up in the morning and Dagon's flat on his face in front of the ark. And they put, they, put, they put Dagon back up. And the next morning they come and Dagon fall has fallen down with his head disconnected and his arms disconnected. So they can't put, him back, can't put him back up. Then they decide that this God is powerful. And they start moving there all, all through these cities. And everywhere it goes, diseases strike the, the, the Philistines. Mm -hmm. And finally they go, we don't know what's going on. So they put the, they put the ark on a cart. And... They put it on an ark that's being drawn by two calves that are still uh, nursing on their mother, and the mother is baying for them, and yet God sends it back to Israel, which may, you know, is, if you know anything about husbandry, two cows that are still nursing are not going to walk away from the mother, making lots of noise for them, and yet God drove it in, and then the people in Jerusalem took the, took the ark and put it back into the, in the tabernacle. Well, the, the ark from that point will end up eventually in Jerusalem, then it'll end up in the tabernacle. At the end of the destruction of that tabernacle, the ark is lost and is still lost. It, never, it was never part of the temple in Jerusalem when Jesus was there. Man's tendency is to look at something and say, I'm going to worship it because it has some history. We see that... Uh, the Catholic Church just did that, you know, through the Middle Ages. They supposedly took bones of the, of the apostles and bits and pieces of the cross and scattered them through all the different uh, churches all through Europe. And it's kind of amazing if all the pieces of bone and, and uh, cross were put together. Man, that was one big cross and a whole big person, you know, big dis apostle. So who knows where they got these bones from. They just said they were supernatural and people would go to these places just basically to worship the, the bit of cross that was there, or worship the, the uh, piece of the apostle that was there instead of worshiping God. And this is man's tendency. This is one of the reasons I believe that Jesus never wrote anything or had a picture of him taken. Could you imagine if somebody had a book that Jesus wrote someplace? The pilgrimages that would be going on there, the... Uh, you know, and everything, people would be flocking to the book that Jesus wrote, not, not, not to God. So I believe that he purposely never wrote anything. Nothing was preserved that he wrote if he wrote, because just man's tendency would be to worship the, the item and not God. It's just amazing that he, he thinks of all that thousands of years and how he knows how these people would be. So it's amazing to me what's been done in the name of and it really is sad and it makes hard for Christians as we go forward because people will say well this was done the crusades were done the the massacring of everybody who didn't agree with them was done and, and you know and it really is sad the Catholics killed anybody who didn't believe in Catholics but then the Protestants did the same thing to the Catholics and other Protestants that didn't agree with them. And so a lot of things have been done in the name of Christ. And you look at the Bible and say, why are you doing this? Why are you killing each other? Why are you, you know, God is fully able to defend himself. He doesn't need you to go kill everybody who doesn't agree with you. We want to be careful because we still have those same tendencies in our day and age. 
We still want to do the same things. We still want to worship the gift rather than the giver. And how many times is that done? Somebody's gotten healed and we start worshiping the, the person who used his, the Holy Spirit to heal somebody and they start getting lifted up and elevated. Uh, some strong messages get delivered and the, the person who delivers the messages gets elevated and, and almost worshiped. And I've seen this happen where a good godly man speaking God's truth gets elevated and they start worshiping the man rather than God uh, who used the man. Uh, we'll seek after God's, after the gifts of God rather than God. Human nature, to worship things that we can see and touch and observe as opposed to an invisible God. And it's very hard to worship a God who you can't see, which is why idols become such a big thing, because here's your God. You can see this God. You can bow down before this God. Just, just a hunk of wood covered with gold, but you can, you can see it. And... Uh, this is what he's talking about. These lands still need to be conquered. And he's saying, okay, Joshua, say your goodbye. You're getting old. You're getting old. We're gonna, you're going to reiterate the truth of God to the people before you're taken out. And so we're seeing them saying, okay, here's the land. Here. Now, you'll notice that God didn't say he was driving out the Philistines. He said, I'm going to take care of the northern country by Sidon. But he didn't say anything about the Philistines. And the Philistines are going to be around for a long time time. And it's one of the last vestiges of the giant, the races of giants that lived in this area. And from, the, from, the, from Gath, which is part of the Philistine empire, is going to come Goliath and his, and his uh, four brothers that are giants, nine, nine and a half feet tall, that are battle, battle veterans of war. And so the, that's an area that still has giants. They've conquered many areas that still have Giant, had giants when they, when they conquered them. So when they were battling all of these southern, especially in the southern campaign, they were fighting a lot of people that we would consider giants. People nine feet tall, which even in our day would be considered pretty good sized person. Because uh, if they get over seven foot, they're considered pretty tall and considered giants in our day, even though we have a lot of people who are six foot tall. So this is, this is what we're talking about. And he says, I'm going to give you, and I'm going to let you look up these different places that we read in, the, in these verses because they're all on the map. I, I glanced at them, and most, most everything I read is on the map. But he says, there's a lot of battle yet to go. And he says, remember that the Reubenites, the Gadites, in verse 8, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have their land already. They have their land, so they're not going to be given more land during this time of drawing of lots. Verse 9. And from Er Orer, that is upon the bank of the river Arnon, and the city that is in the midst of the river, and all the plain of Medibah unto Dibon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, which reigned in, in Heshbon, unto the border of the children of, the Am, of Ammon, and Gilead, and the border of the Gersherites, and the Machirites, and all of Mount Hermon, and all Bashan unto Sikla. And all the kingdom of Og of Bashan that reigned in Ashtaroth and Edriel, who remained in the remnant of the giants, and those did Moses smite and cast them out. So here we are. These are the northern, that northern area that they're talking about. Bashan is in great big print in the map that I gave you. Uh, and it's just to the north of the land that was just taken. And he says, you're going to have all that land. It's, it's, I'm going to give you this land as well. Verse 13, nevertheless, the children of Israel expelled not the Gush Geshurites 
nor the Mechlerites, nor the Geshurites, nor the Mechlerites that dwell in Israel unto this day. Only the tribe of Levi he gave no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire were their inheritance as he said unto them. So remember, here he's referring to they're going to give the land out, and we've got the map that shows how they split up. But the Levites do not get a territory that is theirs. The Levites were given to God to be his servants, and they're going to get cities scattered all through, all through there, and some of those cities are going to be called cities of refuge. And if you remember what the cities of refuge are, if you accidentally killed a person, if you could, if you could get to the city of refuge before their relatives got hold of you, you would have a trial. And you're, you're, if you were found innocent of, of uh, purposeful murder, then you would have to live in the city of refuge until the high priest died. It was like a safe house. It was a safe place. It was a safe place to go. If you made it to that land, you were to live in that city until the high priest died. And if you left the city before the high priest died, and his family was outside waiting for you and caught you outside the city, they could, you were fair game to be killed. So in one sense, it's almost a prison. And you know, it's a very large prison because it's a city. You could do whatever you want inside the city, but you could not leave the city. And this was only for those who accidentally killed somebody. You know, kind of just threw a stone or were target practicing with their arrow and missed the target and hit somebody, chopping down a tree and the ax head flies off and hits somebody and kills them that type of accidental death. So the family couldn't, uh, I mean, the family was that familiar with the law where they were not going to still try it within the city. They were not allowed to kill you inside the city of refuge. Well, then they would be murderers and then they would be executed. Outside the city, they could kill you and it was, it was just revenging, then revenging their family. But inside the city, it would be, it would be just cold-blooded murder. And then they would be taken outside and executed by stoning. They knew better. It wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth the, tr the, the trouble. Uh, now, just getting to the city of refuge didn't guarantee that you were going to live. It just guaranteed that you would now have a trial before the priest who would say, "Okay, yeah, you didn't have anything against the guy. You weren't, you know, you didn't weren't trying to, you know, you didn't weren't purposely trying to kill him out of malice." And now you live in the town. If they found you guilty, then you were sent out of the town and you were executed by the family. When the high priest died, you were free to go back to your home. And the family could not touch you even then. Again, if it would be, well, if they did, then it would be cold-blooded murder and they would be, they would be executed for first-degree murder. Before that, it was, it was vengeance and they were allowed to do it. But afterwards, they could not, without having a murder charge put against them. Well, it had, but God said in the Old Testament, blood for blood, life for life, uh, arm for arm, eye for eye, whatever you did to somebody, you had an equal amount of uh, vengeance done for you. And he said the one who was going to execute you would be a family member of, or take an arm, you hurt somebody's arm, that they could hurt your arm in the same way, but it would be a family member that had the right to do that because they really didn't have a state police. So, I mean, capital punishment has been there forever for God and they, because we are created in God's image and the, and the killing of a man is a serious issue to God. And he recognizes that accidents could happen in a fallen world and said that if it was an accidental death, 
he was going to protect that person from death. But uh, all the way back into uh, the very first story, you know, Cain kills his brother, and, and his first concern is, you know, hey, the rest of the family is going to want to kill me because I killed my brother. And, and in this case, God said, okay, I'm going to put a mark on you. No one's going to kill you, probably because there wasn't a whole lot of people around at the time, so God gave him, gave him mercy. First one recorded in the Bible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We know that the time frame when Cain kills his brother is long enough for both of them to be married and probably have children because there's a lot of people around. He, he says, everyone that will, shall find me will want to kill me. And so that indicates that there's a number of people still. So they probably, at least they understood death. Now, whether they were killing each other or not, they understood death and they understood that there would be a penalty for death. Now, whether that was from practical experience of killing each other or God just saying that if you kill somebody, you're going to be paying with your life. Uh, again, we don't know. We don't know if it was 30 years, 100 years, 200 years. We don't know how far down the road Cain finally, kill, finally kills Abel. Long enough that they were already starting to split up between a world's point of view and a, and a spiritual world a point of view. And Cain represents the world's point of view. That's a good question because we don't know exactly <laughs> what happened in those in that period of time. And this is why we need to be careful when we say, you know, and I know it's taught, you know, Cain was the first murderer. Probably was, but you know, the one thing we can definitely say for sure, he's the first murderer recorded in the Bible. Yeah. All right. Was there other murders? Who knows? Uh, I won't go so far as to say there were or weren't because the Bible is silent in that in that. And one of the things you need to learn is that the Bible is silent on a topic. Don't try, to, don't try to force something upon it. Because if the Bible was to talk about every single thing out there that we need to, might even want to know about, uh, we would have to carry a library around with us to, to, to uh, be able to read the Bible. So God just hits the highlights. Cain's uh, murder, being a murderer, was a big deal because of the rejection of his sacrifice. Minister for three years plus plus about thirty years of life. Uh, theoretically, it's a little bit of hyperbole. I mean, it's but it would be a very large volume because he taught he taught quite a bit in those three years. So I mean, it um, even the people that we have uh, Socrates and Plato, we don't have a, much of what they said, even though we've got volumes of what they've said. Um, it's almost got to be hyperbole. It's a little bit of hyperbole. Because somebody could have been the scholar and you know, you know, wrote down everything that he had said. Because you know, in three years, he could only have said so much. And even if you go 33 years, he could still have only said so much. But the point of that would be, it wouldn't be this 1,500-page book that, that I can hold in my hand. It would be many, many volumes of 1,500 words. So I think that's, it's, it's slightly slightly exaggerated. It just wouldn't be one book anymore. If, you, if they wrote down everything that he said, you'd be having to carry a library with you, you know, 20 or 30 volumes of books for everything that he said. And uh, he, took, like, said the he took the highlights. He took the highlights. He took what's important. Uh, 
they took a sampling of everything that he said, enough to tell us this is what he, what he taught and what he said. Right. Because if everything was written down, we'd have too much. We wouldn't, you know, uh, most people have enough trouble trying to read through the Bible as it is, much less if you had a 10 or 20, 20 10 or 20 set volume over there, all this thick, you'd go, uh, don't think I'm reading every word. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to read that in one year. You probably wouldn't want to read it at all unless you really, really wanted to know everything that Jesus said. And then nobody would ever read the Old Testament or, or Paul's letters because it would all be, what did Jesus say? And we hear that all the time. And, you know, I pretty much hate the, the picture of the red-letter Bibles because what Jesus said is no more important than what he said in the rest of the book. Okay, and, and I've heard people say, well, it's written in red, it's important. Well, no, it's no more important than all the rest of the stuff that Jesus wrote in the book because it's all inspired word of God. To keep in mind, we are hearing a lot about all the gospels that weren't included in the Bible and all of that. Keep in mind that when they start talking about these other books, most of them were written 300, 400, 500, 800 AD. Everything that we have in our Bible is written in the first century. So it's all, all in there. It was all quoted by the early church fathers. The other books were never quoted, weren't even written until after, long after uh, Jesus' life. And they, almost to every one of them that have been rejected are Gnostic Gospels, which means they're all about knowledge and that knowledge is important and special knowledge is even better. And in the Gnostic belief, flesh is bad and, and spirit is good. And it really doesn't matter what spirit you're listening to. As long as it's spirit, it's good. And Satan loves that attitude because he's spirit. And so they go, anything of the flesh is bad automatically. And that's not too far-fetched. Most everything of the flesh is bad. God says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. So pretty much everything that's done in the flesh and is fleshly is bad. Now, that doesn't mean that our flesh is bad just off the, off the, right off the bat, which is what Gnosticism teaches. And then they go, there's special knowledge and special understanding, and the key to spiritual understanding and greatness is to find those secret teachings of God, and the Gnostic books are all about the secret teachings of God. And they were written long after Jesus was born, even though they'll carry the names of Thomas and, and Mary and all, the, all these people, Basically, what they did is they just said, okay, nobody's going to believe that it's made by Sir Charles Lies a lot, you know, so I'll say it was written by, you know, uh, Thomas. Uh, so, and that's why it'll be the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary, according to Mary or the Gospel according to, you know, Judas and all these other Gospels that are out there that are totally worthless. We need to know those things that when people come at us, well, what about this book? What about that book? What about this book? Well, they weren't written in Jesus' lifetime. They were written hundreds, hundreds of years after the fact. And so how can they talk about Jesus' Jesus's life? And they are contradictory to everything in the Bible. But the, the liberals love to grab hold of them and say, well, see, if, they, if you had a, this would have a whole different type of Christianity if you believe these books. And it would be a whole different kind of Christianity because it would be a lie. And so be aware of that as people throw these things out, out at you. Anything that's based upon special knowledge or works will draw to the flesh because that's what the flesh wants. There's a lot of things that go on in all this as we're probably end at this point, but 
when you look at these things, what does the Bible say? Our flesh has to be crucified and God lives through us and he gives us the power to get things done. That goes against everything that our flesh wants. You get somebody like the Book of Mormon, the, the Muslims, the, the Gnostic Gospels, they're all about you doing things and pleasing God and you doing things to get special knowledge and special understanding. And the flesh eats it up. That's what I want. If you witness to enough people, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, this Christian stuff is just too easy. You know, you give, you give up and God takes over. Well, it's obviously not that easy because you're not willing to do it, so it must be pretty hard to do. The light will drive out darkness, and the problem with Christianity as it's taught is that it's all about God. God, God made the sacrifice. God takes the sin away. God is the one that gives us life. He's the one that gives us power to, to live this life. He's the one that does everything for us. And it really bugs people. The, the longer you walk with God, the more you realize that it, you know, we're so awful in the first place that it's so wonderful that God loves us and, and, and paid the price for our sin. But you're right. It comes down to people not recognizing their sin is sin and the idea that God has this spiritual, celestial scales up there that weigh our good and our bad really plays to the flesh. If I do more good than bad, I'll deserve heaven. I will deserve it. And God says, you don't understand. Your sin outweighs any good that you could possibly do. So if you want a scale, one, one sin outweighs everything good that you could possibly do in your entire life, and you're going to be guilty. And that does not resonate well with the flesh. The flesh wants this opportunity to be saying, look what I got. I, I did this. I earned heaven. Uh, I earned God's pleasure. And we do it. And if you think back before you were saved, you were kind of, you know, whether you were conscious of it or not, that was your hope. I hope I've done good enough, enough good that I will please God when I get to stand before him if you think about him at all. And that's what our world, our world is getting to. And before we were saved, we were like that. We we're just whatever we thought was good, we did, and hope, hope that it was good enough for God. And if, you know, if, there, if we even thought about God at all, which most people didn't, you know, it was just like, I'm going to do as much good as I think I can do. And what's the world teach you? Basically, if you can get away with it and it, you, know, you don't hurt too many people, you're OK. And now, they'll tell you don't hurt people, but basically, you have to come down to the fact that it really boils down to you don't hurt too many people and God will be okay with you. And this is the whole basis for all the, all the things that are being called sin. Uh, we, have these problems, uh, we have these problems all the time and the flesh will try to weasel out of whatever consequences is coming its way. It'll do, it'll do whatever it thinks will get away with. And we're not immune to it just because we're Christians. Uh, how many evangelists have gotten caught up in, in uh, adulterous affairs because somehow they just thought they could get away with it after, at some point in their, in their being famous. And, and we want to even be careful there because they were given the right opportunities for the right person at the right time when they were weak and got wrapped up in it and then started living that way and kind of got in over their head and didn't know how to get out. How many, time, how many times do we get in, in a sin over our head and don't know how to get out and the, how to get out is to turn to God, repent, and ask for forgiveness and, and let him deliver us. We just don't like the way he delivers us most of the time because he reveals our sin. You can be convicted. You can think you're going to be hiding. You don't want to face the consequences of it. 
David with his sin with Bathsheba didn't want to face the consequences to it, and he thought he got away with murder and adultery. And you've got to think about this. Murder and adultery were capital offenses even for the king. So he faced death. So he had every reason to keep it hidden. Because if he let it out, then he, by rule, would have been executed. And God showed him mercy and didn't execute it, didn't allow him to be executed. But you know, this is the problem. Sometimes we get so far into our, into our activities, we just don't know how to get out of it. And we're guilty. We don't want to go to God. We don't want other people to know what a horrible, awful person we really are. Because we work hard to keep this facade up that, you know, hey, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a good person. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't pull back that curtain and see what I am behind the scenes. You know, I want, you know, only look at me on what I show you. And this is the problem that's out there. We've got to be careful. And God is saying, and the flesh likes this idea of let me, let me you're going to think I'm this wonderful, perfect person. Which is very important for us to make sure we understand that you know, people need to know we're not wonderful, we're not perfect. You know, we might be better than the average bear, but we're still not perfect. Uh, we've got problems, and we've got to deal with those problems, and we've got to go before God and repent, otherwise he's going to expose our sin eventually. If we won't, if we won't go before God and confess and repent, he will basically force us. He will, he will put our sin out in the open, embarrass us, and we will do just like David did, repent. <laughs> All right, we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you. Lord, we do thank you for all that you've done and for, the, for how much the word is true and that you are a God of truth and you are the one that will get us to heaven because we are sinners deserving punishment. You came and died for us so that we could go to heaven and it's all by grace and your mercy. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.